2 Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 1. Continue our study through this letter from Paul, his last words to his young friend, the young man he has mentored, the one to whom he is passing the torch of ministry to Timothy. In just a minute, we'll read verses 8 to 10 of chapter 1. The primary call of Jesus in the Gospels, particularly in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, is follow me. Now, in that day, there was a sense in which that was literal. Fishermen literally leave their nets. Tax collector closes up shop and follows Jesus from one place to another as he travels. But the heart of the call is not to follow Jesus geographically, but to follow Him spiritually, to learn His words, His ways, to be corrected and taught and rebuked and encouraged by Jesus, to start the path as one person and be changed so that our lives reflect His life, so that our values reflect His values, so that our love reflects His love. To follow Jesus is to follow His pattern of life. But friends, as I'm sure you would affirm, following Jesus is not all sunshine and roses. You see, following Jesus through this world, when we do that, we will receive the same treatment from this world that Jesus received. And the prophet Isaiah said this 700 years before Jesus was born, and it came to be lived out in his life. He was despised and rejected by men. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted. You see, while crowds originally flocked to Jesus to see and partake of His miracles, in the end, the, the world doesn't throw a welcome party for Jesus. The world grabs its torches and its pitchforks and goes after Him and kills Him. His close friends abandon him. Religious leaders conspire against him. He's falsely accused and wrongly convicted. People spit on him. People press a crown of thorns on his head. They mock him. They scourge him. They beat him to the very edge of death. And then they finish the job on a Roman cross. And the one who walked that path looks at you and looks at me and says, follow me. Mark 8, Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Jesus in another place said he did not 
come to bring peace but a sword, and this sword would divide what, humanly speaking, seemed to be the closest of relationships. Fathers and children, brothers and sisters, those who started out as best friends now separated by Jesus Christ. You remember last week, the, the, the dividing line of humanity is nothing other than those who belong to Jesus and those who do not. So Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 to 10, Paul is basically echoing those words calling Timothy to take up his cross and to follow Jesus, to share, to embrace suffering as a part of faithful ministry. And as Paul calls Timothy to that hard road, we hear that call too. And here's what Paul's saying. You ready? Christians must suffer for the gospel by the power of the gospel. Christians must suffer for the gospel by the power of the gospel. Let's read verses 8 to 10. This is what the Spirit says through the Apostle Paul. Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, His prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of His own purpose and grace which He gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Now, I know it's odd to stop in the middle of a sentence, but that is a hinge point, and Paul's about to turn to his own experience. So we're going to stop there and just look at what Paul calls Timothy to do, you'll notice that it starts with this therefore. Uh, if you look backwards, you'll see that Paul has affirmed, you'll remember Paul has affirmed Timothy's faith. He's certain that this faith dwells in him. He calls him to fan into flame the gift of God that was given to him, that he doesn't have a spirit of fear. God didn't give that, but a spirit of power and love and self-control. You'll remember that from last week. And then he says, therefore, because faith actually dwells in you, because you don't have a spirit of fear but of power and love and self-control, do not be ashamed but share in suffering. And actually, that share in suffering is the only, uh, the only imperative in these three verses. Share in suffering. It's not passive. Timothy is to actively share in suffering. But notice how Paul leads up to the call by first telling Timothy what he should not do, right? Do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, His prisoner. Don't shrink back. Don't cower. Don't hide your face. Don't blush. Don't be ashamed. Now, what is shame? Well, Ed Welch gives a pretty helpful definition in his book, uh, Shame Interrupted. Shame is the deep sense that you are unacceptable because of something you did, something done to you, or something associated with you. You see, friends, I, I, there is a right kind of shame. Sin brings shame. 
Sin makes us unacceptable before God, and to have a sense of that unacceptableness is shame. Now, the, the world says we need not be ashamed of anything, right? You need not be ashamed of anything you choose to do, so long as it's really what you want to do, so long as you're doing you. You need not be ashamed of anything. But do you know the terrible, terrible truth in a world that tells you that you don't need to be ashamed of anything? We feel shame anyway. No matter how much the world tells us we ought not to be ashamed, we feel it anyway. We know it deeply. Our friends and our family may ignore our sin. We may try to convince ourselves that our sin isn't that bad, or we may try to justify it because somebody else sinned against me. Or we may even, as a nation, seek to legislate sin into law. But friends, none of that erases shame. It is not without surprise that the entire abortion industry at this moment is seeking to remove the stigma of shame from what the women do who go in there and the men who support them as they go in there. But they will never be successful in removing shame from sin. There will always be shame. We ought to be ashamed. You see, in the end, we cannot rid ourselves of shame no matter what we do, but Jesus Christ can. Only Jesus can remove the shame of sin. And He will, if you turn from your sin and turn to Him, He will forgive you and make you right with God so that you won't be ashamed when you stand before Him. In this verse, verse 8, though, the shame that Paul's telling Timothy to avoid is not shame over his sin. Goodness, this microphone is... It's like the subplot of every Sunday morning, isn't it? What's going to happen with the microphone this week? Next week, we're just stapling it on. (laughs) In this verse, Paul isn't telling Timothy not to be ashamed of sin. What he tells him is don't be ashamed of your gospel ministry. And don't be ashamed of your gospel friends. Now, Timothy's ministry is gospel ministry. Paul talks about it as the testimony about our Lord here. Don't be ashamed of it. Don't be ashamed, Timothy, to stand and proclaim Jesus, crucified, buried, risen, ascended, reigning, and coming again. Do not be ashamed of it. One commentator said, from a human point of view, there was much in the gospel of which to be ashamed. It was a message of a failed prophet rejected by his people, executed by the world's power, and preached by a collection of fishermen and other undesirables. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1 that the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. From a human point of view, this looks like a completely failed venture. 
Surely the world around Timothy and the world around us finds the gospel shameful. That it is shameful. Shame on you and me for standing up and saying that sin is real, that judgment is coming, that Jesus is the only way to escape it. Shame on you. You need to open up your mind. You need to get a broader view. Shame on you. And that's the kind of shame that Paul's saying Timothy needs to avoid. What he's not saying is, well, Timothy, now, in order to not be ashamed, you need to leave behind meekness and start picking fights. He's not saying that at all. He's not saying you need to leave behind humility and become arrogant. In fact, he'll say quite the contrary later in this same letter. But dear friends, judging by the activity of many Christians on social media today, it seems that some think that arrogance and picking fights is what it means to not be ashamed of the gospel. That's not what Paul's saying at all. When Paul tells Timothy not to be ashamed, he's saying that while the world will find your ministry unacceptable, while they will wag their finger at you and will tell you over and over that you ought to be ashamed, don't believe it for a second. Don't let the opinion of the world deter your commitment to the gospel. In other words, don't fear man. Don't let the fear of man creep in, Timothy. Remember, Timothy, you haven't been given a spirit of fear and cowardice and timidity. And not only should he not be ashamed of the gospel, he shouldn't be ashamed of Paul, his gospel friend, right there. He says, nor of me, his prisoner. Now, again, there's plenty to be ashamed of, isn't there? This man's been beaten and thrown out of just about every town he's ever been in. Now he's in prison, and the fact is there are some that are ashamed of Paul. In Philippians 1, Paul talks about those who preach out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. Later in this letter, he will talk about Demas, who loves the world and deserted him. He'll say in chapter 4, verse 16, At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. So why shouldn't Timothy? If everybody's running from this guy, why shouldn't Timothy? Well, did you notice how Paul spoke of himself? He didn't say, nor of me, your friend. He didn't even say, nor of me, a prisoner. He said, nor of me, his prisoner. Not, not Nero's prisoner, not Rome's prisoner, the Lord's prisoner. When Paul refers to himself this way, he is saying that in God's sovereign purposes, this Roman prison is exactly where I must be. His first imprisonment glorified God in the advance of the gospel, and so will this one. So don't be ashamed, Timothy. Don't desert me. Don't turn your back. I'm right where God wants me. And you should have confidence about that when you think of me, when you speak of me. But this is just actually the negative part of the command, isn't it? Don't be ashamed. The positive part is, but share in suffering. As I said, it's a command. It's something that Timothy must do. Share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. 
Paul's call is to join a long line of faithful witnesses that goes back to the Old Testament. So many in the Old Testament suffered for their faithfulness to God. I mean, you don't have to think long before you find an example, do you? You just think about Elijah and Jezebel telling him, well, well, it's either I'm going to die or you are, boy. Now, that's my translation. That's not what it says in the English Standard Version. But the prophets suffered. They're beaten. They're put in stocks. They're in prison. And then in the New Testament, if you just go to the book of Acts, you find more of it. You find in Acts chapter 7, Stephen being uh, martyred. You find that right after that, the believers are dispersed because of persecution. In chapter 8, you find Stephen being, uh, not Stephen, James being beheaded in chapter 12. And now Paul is in prison. This is not a new idea, Timothy. When he says share in suffering, he's not saying, well, you need to do something nobody else has ever done here. He's saying, there's a, there's a cloud of witnesses around you, Timothy. And they're not just watching, they've suffered too. Share in that suffering. Share in the suffering. But what does that look like? Have you ever just stopped to think about that? I want you to think about that for just a second. Somebody walks up to you and commands, God commands you to share in suffering. What does that look like? Is Timothy supposed to go and knock on Nero's door and say, sir, excuse me, but I'm a Christian. Can I get some shackles to match my friend Paul's? Can you throw me in there? Can you beat me? Can you put me on a stick and light me up and make me a torch in your backyard too? That's not what Paul means at all. So what does it mean? If you're not supposed to go picking fights and asking people to come make you suffer, what, what does it mean? I think actually the answer to that question is in the contrast between the first half of the verse and the second half of the verse. He's to share in suffering by not being ashamed of the gospel. Timothy isn't going to have to go looking for suffering. It's going to come and find him so long as he's not ashamed of the gospel. Dear Christian, you don't have to go dare the unbelieving world to hate you. We don't have to go out of our way to provoke people. Being a faithful gospel witness will do all the provoking necessary. As you speak the truth in love, as you are meek, as you are gentle, as you are courageous, as you are compassionate, don't think that if you have the right technique of love and gentleness and the right com you know, combination of words and a smile on your face and, a, and an empathetic demeanor that somehow the world won't hate you. Don't think that for a minute. If anybody communicated perfectly the truth of God, it was Jesus Christ. And Jesus said, the world first hated me. There was nothing wrong with Jesus' communication style. He never failed to be perfect in all of his interactions. He was courageous when he needed to be courageous. He was compassionate when the situation calls for compassion. He, he did all of it with perfection, and the world hated him. So don't think that there's a technique to avoid it. But also don't take, take on a technique where the technique provokes the hatred instead of the gospel itself. 
I mean, those of you who are actively sharing your faith, you know it, don't you? You have loved and served and been kind. And then when you come to that point where you even begin to challenge the thinking of the other person that we do need a Savior, it shuts down. I mean, Jeremiah, you and I experienced that on the golf course, didn't we? In addition to bad golf, on my part, not on your part. We were partnered up with another pair of guys, and, and the conversation kind of like was doing a cycle. It would occasionally come back and touch on the gospel. And every time that happened, the com- you talk about golf. We'll talk about golf all day long. You talk about Christ, and they're checking the distance to the pin from here. Because they don't want it. The call to suffer is a call to suffer for the gospel. Now, note that phrase, for the gospel. For the gospel. We are not, we should not walk around thinking that if we're being opposed for our political views, that that is the same as suffering as a Christian. The gospel is what brings the kind of suffering that Paul is talking about. Beware that people are blurring the lines of this today. The call to suffer is the call to suffer for the gospel. Do not be ashamed, but share in suffering. Well, how can we suffer well? Quickly, number two, the power to suffer. Do not, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Verse 9, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of His own purpose and grace, which He gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. It is, he says, suffer for the gospel by, there's the means by which we will suffer for the gospel, by the power of God. Well, now, what power are we talking about? Paul is not generic here. He's not saying, well, think of God as creator. Now, certainly God's power is on display in creation, right? For God to create all things out of nothing, for Him to uphold and rule over every single molecule in the universe so that if He stopped for a millisecond, everything disintegrates. That's power. But that's not the power Paul refers to. He doesn't say the power of a creator, though it is God's power, is going to sustain you. He points him to a specific place where God's power is manifested, and it is in the gospel. It is the power of God in the gospel that will sustain him. In verse 9, he says, this God who saved us and called us, saving us from our sin, from our own way of living, from certain destruction, from eternal judgment, and calling us to a holy calling, a life that is pleasing to God, a life that is based on what God says and not based on what I think. A holy calling. 
It is this power that will sustain him. It's the power that takes those who are dead in their sin and makes them alive. It is the power that cancels the record of sin and credits us with the righteousness of Jesus. It's the power to take those blind to God and to His love and open those eyes so that we see our sin and our Savior. It's the power that takes God's enemies and makes them God's children. It's the power that takes human enemies and makes them brothers and sisters in the same family. This power, this power that will culminate not only in the redemption of our souls, but in the redemption of our bodies and the redemption of all creation, recreating everything so that John in Revelation 21 sees a new heaven and a new earth coming down. That power will sustain you, Timothy. That's what he's saying. That's, that's power, right? There's no denying that power. This power, this transforming power. But it's not dependent on you, Timothy. This power didn't just spring up because, you know, you turned your life around, you turned over a new leaf, you did well. That's not where the power came from. This is totally dependent on God Himself. Keep going in verse 9. Not because of our works, but because of His own purpose and grace, which He gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. It was God's purpose, His settled, determined will. And it is His grace His favor to us based on nothing about us. Boy, sometimes we'd really like to think that that we're quite a trophy for God. If we are, it's because His grace made us that way. (laughs) You see, it's not because of us. It's not because of us at all. Do you believe that? Do you believe it's not because of you? Do you believe there's nothing you did this last week that makes God love you more? Do you believe that you did nothing this last week that could diminish His grace toward you in Christ Jesus? Do you believe that? You have to or you'll go insane trying to live life. As a Christian... God's purpose, God's grace, that's the only way that we were loved before the dawn of time. Chosen by our Maker, hidden in our Savior. Charles Spurgeon once said, I'm quite certain that if God had not chosen me, I should have never chosen Him. And I am sure He chose me before I was born, or else He would have never chosen me, never would have chosen me afterwards. God's power, God's purpose, God's grace in Jesus. That's what he says, gave us in Jesus. And then we see in verse 10, which has now been manifested through the appearing of of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Jesus has abolished death. He had, in other words, he has rendered it 
powerless, useless. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The stinger has been cut out of death. For those who survive after one has died, it does sting in the temporary, doesn't it? But let me tell you, the one who has died in Christ felt no such sting when they walked through that door. The stinger was gone. It is gone. We have dear, dear friends that I cannot stop thinking about as I preach who lost their daughter yesterday. She just graduated high school. Lost their daughter in a car accident. And praise God, she was in Christ because that death stings. I will stand here and I will tell you I am removed from the family, but I, it is killing me. And no doubt they feel the sting of that loss. But do you know who doesn't feel it? She doesn't. There is no sting left for anyone who is in Christ. So that Paul writes in Romans, I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Jesus has abolished death. And if you are not in him, you will be stung on that day. Stung by the great and terrible wrath of God. But Jesus will save you if you turn to him. And Jesus has brought life on the flip side of that and immortality to light. This is the power of the gospel, the power to save to us from our sin, to call us to God, the power that has abolished death, the power that opens our eyes to life and immortality. And God did it all, friends, without an ounce of your help and without an ounce of mine. And that's actually the only way it's good news is if it has nothing to do with me and everything to do with him. That power will sustain you. And in, a, in another text, I'm going to read one more text and then we're going to finish up. There is a promise for those who suffer as a Christian in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 10. After you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Did you hear that? If you will not be ashamed and share in suffering for Christ, God will not dispatch some angel to do these things. God will not just sign off on it and make sure it happens. God himself will confirm and strengthen and establish and comfort and restore you. 
What a promise. This command to share in suffering was for Timothy, but it echoes down through the ages to us. Gray Road, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord. Do not be ashamed of those who faithfully proclaim that gospel no matter what the world does to them. Share in suffering and the power of the gospel will sustain you. Guaranteed. The power of the gospel, the power of God in the gospel will keep you and help you. Let's pray together. Father, we bow as those who need your grace in order to not be ashamed of your gospel and those who serve you faithfully. We pray that you will keep us from the fear of man, from the fear of what others may think when we speak the gospel, from the from the fear of what may happen, uh, of being rejected by someone if we share the gospel faithfully. Remind us of our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who was hated before us, who was rejected and despised and was not esteemed, who was spit on and beaten and mocked and killed. Help us to be as faithful as Him in proclaiming the good news and help us to walk faithfully the road that follows Him through suffering and into glory. We we are thankful for the power of the gospel which reminds us that no matter what man does to us here, that Jesus has abolished death and brought light and immortality to life. Help us to live in light of this for the sake of Jesus Christ. And it's in His name we ask. Amen.